Welcome to the Celtic Feminine Podcast, where we explore an intersection of topics such as folklore, ethnomusicology, Celtic spirituality, and women's studies. Often, we will be discussing Celtic spirituality with a specific emphasis on the Irish cultural landscape. We will also talk a great deal about Bridget, the pre-Christian goddess and saint. Today, I have Dolores Whelan with me. We originally recorded this program in late October 2017 near Samhain. Dolores is an organizer of the Bridget of Fahert Festival that happens each year for about one week around Bridget's Day. So welcome to the Celtic Feminine Podcast, Dolores. The wonderful opportunity to be able to share some of this very important wisdom, important for the planet at this time. Yes, exactly. Not so much for the planet as for us people who do not know how to live on this planet. That's right. In a sustainable way, yeah. Exactly. And you have quite a story about how you've come to Celtic spirituality and in your spiritual path. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Well, I have been, I suppose, on a spiritual path for a long, long time, as long as I can remember, since I was about 28, and that's a long time ago. In 1983, I met Matthew Fox, and I knew I had to go and study with him. It was like my soul was just so alive when I met him. It was like, oh my God, I had never heard anybody speaking with such passion and clarity. And my soul just sang and I did go. And I was very blessed that my parents lent me the money to go and study there. And I studied at the Institute of Creation-Centered Spirituality for two years, studying with wonderful people and having my mind blown at least twice or three times a week and not knowing whether I was coming or going sometimes, but it was just so revolutionary. And it's interesting, the Irish word for transformation in the Irish language is agachru o bun, which means to change from the bottom, bottom. And that's exactly what happened. There was a very deep transformation that happened in me during all these different forms of education that I experienced in the Institute of Creation-Centered Spirituality. And My background was as a biochemistry lecturer. I wasn't that used to dancing or drawing. Well, I used to dancing, but not in the middle of a class and not drawing and not knowing how to talk about your feelings and not understanding that all of these things were part of education. That was all wonderfully new for me and wonderfully liberating and freeing. And then I back to Ireland in 1985 and began to, well, it was a huge culture shock. I didn't quite know where I was. I thought I was on an alien planet. A part of me thought I was crazy to come back, and another part of me thought it would be so much easier to go back to California and be there because I'd be with my tribe, as it were. But there was a deeper part of me, and it was my soul, and maybe the soul of Ireland that demanded I stayed. And in a way, that might sound very grandiose, but it isn't. It's like if we listen deeply, we know where we're meant to be, and we know what the next step is. So I stayed, and in the most tiniest of steps, began offering some of what I had learned, which had so transformed me. And I believed, and I still believe, that if it worked for me, if it transformed me, then it could transform anybody, because we're all essentially looking for spirit. We're all essentially looking for um, a deeper connection with life. I mean, one of the biggest seekings in in the human life is is a seeking for deep connection, 
And it's one of the things which is so incredibly missing in our lives. In spite of all the technology, there is still a lack of deep and meaningful connection in many people's lives. And so that connection is not only with ourselves and our deep selves, with our friends, with the divine, however we name it, and with the earth and with other beings with whom we share the earth. That connection has become very, very tentative in many ways. And because of that, we are finding ourselves in, I suppose, a great sense of loneliness on this planet. Human beings, I believe, in spite of everything, are quite lonely. You talk in your book, Ever Ancient, Ever New, about this sense of loneliness. Yeah. Like we're motherless children. Yes, yes. Well, it's interesting that you picked that phrase out of the book because it is a very strong phrase and it is a very strong sense of alienation. We are disconnected from the mothering energy. And what I mean by that is there is the feminine mothering energy and there is the masculine energy which helps us to grow. But the mothering energy comes first and it's from that place of being of knowing ourselves held safely in the mother energy that we can dare to move away from that base and go and explore and become creative, which is the father energy. But if you haven't got that deep under, uh, connection with the mothering energy, it can be scary to go out exploring. Now, in our societies, in most of our societies and most of our religions, the emphasis on the divine is named primarily as masculine. And I believe that the result of that is that if we name the divine primarily as masculine, then as above, so below, then what gets value on the plane that we live in is actually the masculine. Now, it's not that we set out to not honor the feminine, but if all the emphasis is on the masculine, we inadvertently do not honor the feminine. And I believe that at this time on the planet, we desperately need to connect with the feminine within ourselves, which is that mothering energy, and with the feminine in the earth and in the land, and that energy that creates home, that sense of belonging, because we don't have that sense of belonging a lot of times. People live in places that they're not from, they live in places that they have no relationships. Where I live, a lot of the houses have big gates, you know, people are disconnected, and that's what they think they want. But we need to be connected. And in, in the Irish language, we have a beautiful shanakil, which is a proverb, and the shanakil is, it's our Scott Akela, Amari Nadini, which means we live in each other's shadow or we live in the crook of each other's arms. And when we believe that we don't need each other, then we're in dangerous territory. Wow. When you came back to Ireland, you had a number of different spiritual teachers. Could you speak a little bit about those? Yes, I had Matthew Fox, Brian Swim, Jean Houston, Joanna Macy, Thomas Berry. They were many of the teachers and that I had and Alexandra Kovacs were the people I had as teachers when I was at the Institute of, of Culture and Creation Spirituality. When I came home I um, in 85, a few years later in 86, you know, in 88, 
I was invited by a wonderful woman called Eleanor Dettiker, who was a wealthy um, woman who supported the development of women's spirituality. And she funded a lot of events in Ireland. And she asked me and a group of people if we would travel around Ireland's sacred, some of the sacred sites with a Native American Indian woman called Diani Wahoo, who's a Cherokee Indian woman. She lives in Vermont. She's also a Buddhist scholar. And um, we, we went around the country with her. And it was an extraordinary experience for me because until then, I was very happy working with the creation-centered approach to Christianity. That was a really good place for me. And I had spent several years now teaching and living it and loving it. But when I walked around, when we went around the sacred places with Diani and began to, for the first time in my life, really connect with the sacredness of the earth in a tangible, visceral way, I came home from that trip. Uh, it was September 1988. And then I went to Iona in Scotland because this same lady was inviting us all to this big gathering. And Iona, of course, is one of the meccas of what I learned to know as Celtic spirituality. I had not heard about Celtic spirituality, even though I was Irish. So we went to Iona. That was another amazing experience of sense of connection with something very old. So after those two experiences, I had another question. And, you know, they say the door to knowledge is questioning. So the question was, because in Ireland, as in most places, people are either, if you're Christian, and most people in Ireland, well, we have Christian, we have, we have Jewish, we have Islam. But the, in 1988, the majority of people in Ireland were Christian. Isn't so now, but then. And then if you were Christian, you were either Catholic or Presbyterian or Methodist or Church of Ireland, which is the same as the Episcopalian Church. So I then had a question, and the question was, is there an older form of spirituality native to this country that we don't know about? Now, I didn't know there was even a body of work called Celtic spirituality or Celtic Christianity. I'd never heard of it. Yes, I knew we had places like Glendalough and Clonmacnoise and Newgrange and all of those places, but somehow they were seen as connected with the past rather than a living experience of spirituality. That was hugely different for me. It is, we began to realize that actually what I had thought was something that happens maybe 15, 16, 1700 years ago and was over was in fact very alive. The following summer, I went to a course in Dublin on Celtic spirituality with the person who became my teacher and my mentor, uh, Father Sean O'Din, who actually died this morning uh, and at 84. And he was my teacher and my mentor. And I learned so much from him. And he was, he was, and he, we invited him to speak at our Bridget Festival several times. He and I shared the platform on many at many conferences together. It was always an honor to be with him. And he was like, he was a druid. He was like, he was just so filled with the ancient spirit of the spiritual spirit of this country that when he spoke, it all just flowed out through him. He, you know, he wasn't given a lecture as in an intellectual head, even though he was a very brilliant scholar. But when he went to speak, it flowed from his heart. And I was so blessed 
and he actually read the manuscript for Ever Ancient, Ever New, and was very, very supportive of me. And um, the publisher who published that first edition was the same publisher who published all of his books. So that was a lovely thing. And I did ask him to launch the book, but he said, no, he didn't do those kind of things. So he didn't launch the book, which was fine. But um, then that started this whole quest. So what would that look like? This older spiritual story that if it was real at one stage, could we also reconnect with it? Could we take with us into the 21st century the distilled wisdom of the pre-Christian Druidic culture, uh, the Celtic culture and the Druidic culture, the pre-Celtic megalithic culture. Could we distill the gifts from the megalithic, the Neolithic, the Celtic, the Druidic, the Celtic Christian and bring it along into our 21st century? That was my question. And that has exercised my life for the last 28, 29 years, I have been working with that question. And you asked me about Ever Ancient, Ever New. Well, I wrote that in 2005. Uh, I just moved into my new home in, 2000, in, in May 2005, and I started to write it in July 2005. And I finished the book, and it was published in September um, 2006. And then I did a totally revisioning of the book, totally edited, re-edited, included a CD with meditations. That came out in 2010. It actually came out in the beginning of 2011, but it was finished in 2010. So that was a very special because I, again, the synchronicity was, was extraordinary. Uh, somebody, a woman called Sue, contacted me from the States to buy the book. I said the book was out of print. And I said, but just today I decided I was going to self-publish it. And she sent me back an email and said, I would like to help you get this book back into the world. And I am a freelance editor. And she edited the book as gift to me, Sue Mosher. She didn't charge me for it. And we did it. And it was just amazing. That's incredible. It's a beautiful book. You mentioned Stanardin, and I'm really sorry to hear that he passed away this morning. And it's very synchronistic that we're talking today and having this beautiful conversation together. And Samhain's on the horizon here. We're recording. It's uh, October 9th. But I remember when I was in Ireland studying at the University of Limerick for my master's in ethnomusicology, it was that Samhain back in 2009 that Father Sean O'Dunn came to Limerick and he gave a talk on Samhain. Yeah, he would have. He, he used to work in the University of Limerick all the time and in Mary Eye College. Yeah, yeah. The monastery he lives in is just about 10 miles from Limerick City. At the Glenstall Abbey, yes. Glenstall Abbey, yeah. Oh, that's a lovely connection. Yeah, beautiful. And what I've even heard is that the brothers call him the Druid, you know? <laughs> Oh, well, I'm sure they do. He has a shock of white hair that when he speaks, it goes back like this. Just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. He was such a great man. And it was just so interesting now that, you know, it's around Samhain time. I saw him at Samhain. And when I got inspired about Bridget, I ordered his book and I thought, oh, look, I get to order a book straight from Ireland. And it was Sean O'Dunn's book. And, you know, it was something that really helped me understand 
who she was because I didn't really know much about her. All I know is that she sparked my imagination, we'll say. It's a, it's a larger story than that, but yes, it's a beautiful thing. I'm coming from the US, I was living in New Jersey. I know, you know what sparked my interest about Ireland and Celtic spirituality, but why do you think more and more people seem to be drawn to Irish and Celtic spirituality. I mean, even even just Irish culture, like, you know, we have the Celtic knot work and we have, um, even if you go to a big chain bookstore, you'll always find a calendar with the landscapes of Ireland. And what is it about Ireland and Irish culture and Irish spirituality that is drawing so many people to it? I think that's a, uh, that's a great question, Amy. And I've often pondered about that myself because given the size of Ireland, the geographical size and the population of, of Ireland, the impact that Ireland has on the world stage is huge. And in the last 100, 150 years, what I loosely call the Celtic spirit has been rising. And it came first, uh, as soon as we got any kind of freedom, the spirit started to, to rise. So around the beginning of the 20th century, we had so many world-class writers. We had Singh, we had... Oh my Beckett, we had Yeats, we had um uh, what's his name? <laughs> the man who wrote Finnegan's Wake and Ulysses. James Joyce. Yes, exactly. James Joyce, yeah. Just James Joyce, yeah. And then we had all these extraordinary poets in there in and we have like people like Seamus Heaney, Patrick Kavanagh, Ivan Boland. Uh I mean just it goes on. In the fifties, the music started to become a, a modem of expression of what I call the spirit of Ireland. So the spirit of the people of Ireland and the land of Ireland. It's really about the land. So, um, like for example, I grew up in a family where my father's passion in life, apart from his business, which he was very passionate about, also was about the recover, the recovery of Irish music, traditional music. And the recovery of it, and, and one of the ways he was hugely involved, was the teaching of children, the music. So that, because in the 50s, the music had almost died out. It was much more popular in the States, particularly, and maybe in England, but in Ireland it wasn't. So that whole recovery of Irish music began. And as it grew, it became more and more sophisticated. It, it is, and Irish music is actually quite extraordinary when you really, really get into it. And I think there's a level uh, of connection. There's something that happens in a session. Uh, if you're listening to a music session and it's a very powerful, some of them are very powerful. And there's a, I, actually, I was just talking to somebody about this last night. And it's like there's a moment when the music takes off. And the players take off, but also so do the people who are participating, the audience. I have seen this happen many, many times where the music is going and, it's, and then suddenly it's like it goes to another level. Hmm. It goes to another dimension. And if you're really present, it'll take you with the music. So the music is very otherworldly. In fact, I gave a talk at the Flacchio Heron in 2010 and 2011, and it was Awakening the Celtic Soul Through Music, because music has always been a way into spirit. And in almost every native culture, the music through which you approach and connect with spirit is through the traditional music of that culture, whether it's um, whether it's chanting, as in the Tibetan or the Hindus, or Irish music in Ireland, the music is a gateway into the soul. 
and into the spiritual dimension. I think that there is a deep connection in Irish people, uh, and a lot of it is not conscious, by the way, is there's, there is a connection with a different dimension of reality which is more present in Ireland than it is in other European countries, not because we're better or worse than anybody else, but because that dimension is more accessible to people here because we never had the Industrial Revolution. We never had all of that stuff that happened in the 18th, 19th and early 20th century. Now, we have huge changes happening in the 20, 21st century, but we missed a whole part of that. And so the magic of the pre-industrial culture remained alive for a longer period of time and uh i think i think that's part of it mm, that, that is a beautiful explanation yeah and people come to ireland now i have to say that it's there's a huge amount happening in ireland now that does not honor that at all mm. and there's a huge amount that is quite difficult in ireland i mean you know we're caught up in the rat race and we've become extremely materialistic and all of those things you know but there's an openness to that dimension still for many people. Uh, interesting, I went to Newgrange in 1986. I had this extraordinary experience of a guy I hardly knew sent me a letter. He had, he had gotten two tickets for Newgrange for the solstice in 1986. I had never been to Newgrange. But he sent these two tickets to me and I went with a friend and to say it blew my mind is an understatement because the sun came in and lit up the chamber on the first time I was ever in Newgrange so that was quite mind-blowing but at that time I, I came home that day and I told some people and they, they kind of glazed over they didn't even know what I was talking about and it was just a few days before Christmas and people were busy with their shopping and so on and so forth however what's lovely to see is that now on maybe the four or five mornings around this winter solstice, there'll be anything from 200 to 1,000 people there outside Newgrange. They know they're not going to get in, but they're there to witness this ancient miracle. So I think that this is very important because um, a po the poet Ivan Boland, I heard her say this at a lecture one night in, in way back in the 80s, and it really helped me to stay on course. And she says, it's a foolish centre that ignores the margins, and it's the role of the margins to influence and redefine the centre. So way back in the 80s, those of us who were going to Newgrange were on the margins. But over the last 25 years, that has changed dramatically. And now it's, it's like it even gets on the nine o'clock news, so it must be important. Yeah. <laughs> Not only Newgrange, but all of the sacred sites. They're becoming, and we're discovering more and more places of alignments with the equinox, sunrise, the summer, the summer solstice, the sunset. So there's all this amazing landscape or temples within the landscape of Ireland that are being reactivated and reawakened. That's why so many people come to Ireland. They don't necessarily know in a cognitive way what they're looking for, but something draws them. And when they get here, I mean, they meet all the, all the crass commercialism as well, but there's another dimension that they meet if they're open. Mm -hmm. But in order to meet that dimension, you have to be open. You cannot meet it if you're not open. And you have to reside in your heart. That's right. It's in the heart that this connection, and um, Patrick Kavanaugh, our great Irish poet, uh, very much a nature poet, he says, God can't catch us unless we rest in the unconscious room of our hearts. I mean, I'm, I'm just sitting here, it's 
I'm in Vermont. It's a little chilly and it's rainy. A beautiful fall foliage. And I, as you're talking, I'm like, I need to go back to Ireland right now. <laughs> so, and I've read too from a number of people. I mean, maybe even across different disciplines. You know, I hear it here and there. Oh, I, I went to Ireland. I just, something keeps calling me back. I keep wanting to go back. And there is a different feeling about Ireland than even England or that area or continental Europe. There's something about Ireland that has this, like you said, your heart knows. But you see, I think it's that because we didn't have all that industrialization, there's a stronger connection with the primal energy of the country. And also, there's a stronger connection with our pre-Christian pre-Druid, all of those ancient lines, they're still open, whereas in many other countries mm -hmm. they're not. Now, and what's very interesting, you will often see some of the advertisements, you know, which are, you know, for selling them, they will have that mythical thing. And, and the other thing about it is, we do have this great capacity for story, for music, for singing, you know, people love mm -hmm. to sing and tell stories and read poetry. So that creative place is, more, is, is, is quite awake. It's probably awake in many other countries. But there's something, I think it's, it's the connection with the primal energy of the land that people don't consciously know about it, but somehow get it. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is really the gift. But we have to be open. Some people walk past places and they have no idea of what they are. Mm -hmm. I did it myself. Mm -hmm. People used to talk about, do you sense the energy here? And I genuinely didn't know what they were talking mm -hmm. about. <laughs> so, so it's not to be in any way a superior or anything like that. It's not that at all. It's just to know that, yeah. Exactly. When I think about uh, like the Bridget of Farhart Festival or the Fela Brida in Kildare, do you think that these are festivals that are known in the general public that people generally embrace, do you think that the, just a number of people from all around the area come to these festivals? Like, is it accepted and do people embrace it enthusiastically or do people just not really know so much about these festivals? Both of these things are true. We started the Bridget of Fahert Festival in 2008 with just one event. And then the next year, we decided to put on an actual festival. And myself, there were four of us. There was Tom Hamill, Maura Lennon, Marit Heaney, and myself. And we put on about maybe five or six events. And Maura and I went to Kildare, and we took the Bridget, we took a light from the Bridget Flame, and we brought it back. And that is lit at every event that we do. It was a very small festival, and it's still small. But small mm -hmm. is fine, because... It's not necessary. In the area where I live and in Kildare, there is a huge awareness of Bridget and a huge devotion to Bridget. The devotion to Bridget is like she's like the mother that you go out to tell your story to. If you go to Fahard, I was in Fahard yesterday. And interestingly, I met a man who, where I get my wood pellets. He was there. He was surprised to see me there with a group of Americans. And I was very surprised to see him there. So it's a very egalitarian place. Bohard is a very egalitarian place. So is Kildare. You go to the well in Kildare, the well at Bohard, and there are always people there. And they all, you go out there, it's a very peaceful, and it's somehow that you can talk to this saint 
or this goddess as she was before she became a saint or this archetypal energy of the mother because that's what Bridget is. In the Celtic tradition we say at the center of the spiritual tradition of Ireland is mm. Bridget. She stands center of the spiritual tradition no matter how it may be denied but she does and can i tell you that there's a move afoot now to be create a public holiday for bridges day <laughs> so we have far more people from america and all over ireland at the bridget festival than we do have from dundalk mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because people say but that's just out there up there they're in fahard so so, but that's growing, and mm. and and myself and four of us are making a documentary on Bridget of Forward in November. So it'll be going out in our local radio in the beginning of January, which is fantastic. Yeah. So the state, we this this program has been funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be doing that on the 18th of November. So we'll be it'll be going live on I don't know. I'll let you know when it's coming out. Sometime the first two weeks of January. That sounds great. Just that there would be enough interest to get and to be funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland is fantastic. Wow. In Fard in particular, there is a huge uh, mm -hmm. devotion to Bridget. A huge devotion to Bridget. Very Much of it very traditional, uh, which is good. And people go out there and, and on Bridget's Day. There, you were there on Bridget's Day. Yes, I was there on Bridget's Day. Mm -hmm. And on the night before in Kildare, there are hundreds of people who yes. come for the... But since our festival has gotten kind of big, I can't get down there because I'm too busy up yeah. here, which is fine. It's wonderful to know that all that's happening. Yeah, exactly. So I asked that question about what's the relationship between these festivals and um, the general public because... Sometimes it, it's funny when I get into taxis and the, the taxi driver always asks me questions. He always asks me, well, what are you here for? What are you doing? I'm, I'm here for Bridget's Day. And they're kind of like, really? Like you'd come over here for Bridget's Day? Or I was just sitting at, a, it was a seafood place on the sea there by Galway. I had a new book I got from the bookstore and it was a Celtic spirituality book. And you know, the man came over and poured water in my glass and, and asked me, you know, oh, what are you reading? I'm like, oh, this is a book on Celtic spirituality. And he kind of giggled like it was a very strange thing. And I was like, what is that? What, 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 what's that giggle about? Well, you see, he is like, I'd say, 90% of the people of Ireland don't know we have an ancient spiritual tradition. I didn't know until I met Sean O'Dinn in 1989. I didn't know that, that we had a unique form of Christianity. And this is very, very important. The Celtic Christian Church existed totally independent of Rome for four or five hundred years. Christianity came to Ireland, it's thought, in the first century AD. Not Patrick did not bring Christianity to Ireland. He came in the fifth century. But it was there from the first century. And the first um, exponents of the Christianity were the um, were thought to come from Egypt. And they were the desert fathers because they would have come up the west coast of Ireland because the sea routes were the way people traveled. There were no planes, there were no trains, there were no roads. So people traveled by water. So Christianity, when it came to Ireland, there was this beautiful blending of the pre-Christian Druidic traditions with the Christian message. And it was like it went on a turn, another turn of evolution. So there was no conflict. Now, it depends on which stories you read. And, you know, Patrick is very interesting because Patrick came into Ireland. He wasn't Irish. 
Uh, whereas all the other saints, like Brendan, like Bridget, like Kevin, like Colm Kill, they all were from Ireland, you know. But Patrick came, and Patrick, I, I, I was asked to give a talk about Patrick a few weeks ago, and so I read quite a lot about it. And I... I learned a lot of lovely things about Patrick. He had a beautiful heart. He was a real mystic. Uh, he, he, he was in Ireland by a long time as a slave, as a young person. He came back to Ireland when he was much older. And he had a vision about coming back. But the story we hear about Patrick is actually probably different than the reality. Because the story we hear is very much about the affiliation with Rome. And there was that affiliation with Rome. So Patrick is always, I suppose, uh, in some way is more to do with the Roman Christianity. But Bridget and Colm Kill, Patrick, Bridget and Colm Kill are the three patrons of Ireland. But Colm Kill and Bridget are much more connected with the early Celtic spirituality, the Celtic Christianity. So, um, but I think that that also has to do with politics and you know, history is always written from the perspective mm. of the victor. So Patrick's story is very, and it, you know, the, it will say he cast out those demons, he banished the snakes, he battled against and won against the druids. That's very divisive. Yeah, I don't know that that's what happened. And the story I prefer to to go with is that there was an evolution, and there's lots of evidence for that. All the early Christian. Celtic Christian monastic sites were all evidence of that evolution from the pre-Christian Druidic tradition into the Celtic Christian tradition. And there is lots and lots of evidence to that. And to go back just to Celtic spirituality in the broad sense, you have the Bridget of Farhurt festival, the Bridget of Kildare festival, Felabrida down there in Kildare. Um, what about the local parish priests and the diocese in general? How do they view? That's a very good question. Well, I mean, apart from the Bridget of Farhurt festival, which we organize, there are many other events that happen in the local Catholic Church, there's what's called a tridium, which is three days of mass and prayer in honor of Bridget. In Fahad itself, there will be lots and lots of different masses there and lots of people coming to do um, prayers at the shrine. Then on the night of Bridget's day, there's a pilgrimage from the graveyard up at the top of the hill, down a candlelight procession. Again, all of these are organized very much within the context of the Catholic Church. The group that we're involved in, we would consider ourselves to not be aligned with any. Like, we're all Christian, I think, but our focus is not so much on being aligned with a particular religious expression as to be more about a spiritual understanding of the spirituality of this country and Bridget at the heart of it. Now, we do our Eucharist or we do our prayer service in the beautiful church at Fahard on the shrine. And myself and some of my colleagues, we work with a group of Germans every year. Mm. And we get the relic of St. Bridget from the priests. And there's no problem. They're really happy that we're doing it. It's very respectful. But, you know, I don't know. You see, in this area, because it is so steeped in Bridget, like every child in this whole area, oh, 20 miles either direction, makes bridges crosses for days before bridges. I never made a bridge cross in my life as a child because I came from different parts of the country. Right. Yeah. So, and then in Kildare, Bridget is huge as well. But, and Bridget is actually, I was working with a group of Americans yesterday uh, at Forhurt and she told me they made bridges crosses in their library and I was quite surprised. Oh, right. Sure. And that's what I often hear from people that, oh, 
oh, Bridget, I know her because we made crosses as children, you know, uh, especially, you know, when I was at the University of Limerick and I was talking to other university students and, it, oh yeah, of course, Bridget, you know, sometimes I would get, I even liked her better than Patrick. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Sometimes when you have these events, you also have people who are interested in uh, feminist expression, and then you also oh, yeah. have this political, ecological spirituality, and things like that, that there are, are a lot of political issues that are tied around her. And I was just kind of wondering if there's any kind of differences between what happens at the local parishioner level. Yeah, my sense is that a lot of the, can I just say that the festival that I'm involved in running, we're very clear about what we do. What we want to do is to make Bridget's wisdom and energy and vision, which was of living in harmony with nature, and to promote that to all people. And it's not caught up in a particular religious doctrine. And um, so that's important. That's a difference. And also that we do not sit and say, look, it wasn't, wasn't life wonderful in the fifth century in Ireland. No, it wasn't. It was hard. So what we're doing is, well, I actually have a beautiful poem here which helps to elaborate. What we're doing is we're saying, okay, why are we celebrating this woman who lived 1,500 years ago? Unless there was something in what she was doing that is important for us now. Right. So our, that is the question. Why would we be doing this? We celebrate Bridget at the Feast of Imbolc or the Festival of Bridget because... That is her time. She is the one, as it said, who breathes life into the mouth of dead winter. She comes with the new life force as the life force in the earth rises. So one of the reasons, like one of my colleagues in the Bridget of Forehead Festival would say, well, isn't it wonderful to meet and celebrate at the beginning of February? Because we've made it through the winter. What does Bridget stand for? She stands for the life force rising. And there's that lovely, lovely song, it says, Bridget of the sunrise, rising with the springtime, rising in the springtime, healing all the land. So she embodies uh, Shona Din's wonderful word, Nyart, N-E-A-R-T, which is the life force. It's similar to the chi or, or the ki or the prana, but it's the Nyart, the, the, the divine life-giving energy. So she embodies that. And, you know, she comes in with that energy. And the word Bridget is um is comes in from a, a word which uh, relates to exalted one so she was always uh, she was very very honored and and the thing about it is in the pre-christian time bridget was the name given to a lot of the different goddesses because there were different goddesses in different parts of the country but the goddess holds not the energy of life of birth of life of death in the three different aspects. So Bridget, while we celebrate her mostly at the time of Imbolc, Bridget actually, in her goddess form, holds the energy of all three aspects of the feminine, which is the, the, the young feminine, the maiden, the mother giving birth, and the kalyak, or the crone, the person who brings. So the feminine is associated with the coming of life, with the living of life, and with the letting go of life in death. At Samhain, as you talked about there, Bridget takes her Kalyak form. And she, and actually on our website, there's a lovely, tiny, it's like a one minute video, I think, about we did a lovely ceremony at the Fahard Shrine on one of the days around the 1st of November last year. It was beautiful, beautiful piece. So it's this whole idea. So the goddess energy, 
which is the energy, the life-giving energy, is also is represented by a local goddess, but is also present in the land. And here's a really interesting piece is that when a king is inaugurated, and these would be even small tribal kings or the high king, the word for the inauguration, there is no word in the Irish language for inauguration. So the inauguration, the word is banishri, and that is the wedding of the king. And the ruler must marry the goddess of the land ritually and must make his vow to her that he will create a just society. And if his reign is not just, then the crops Mm -hmm. will fail and the people will be unhappy and he has to resign. Isn't that a one philosophy? And, And the thing about it is, but that's the way it was in earlier times because, and the reason this is so important, is because the effects of mismanagement of your land were immediately evident and impacted your life. Now, if we have a crop failure, we import that product from somewhere else. So we don't get to experience that um, difficult consequence of bad management. And we live in a world Mm -hmm. where there is no respect for the land, mostly. We see it, uh, to use the word, I think it's of Thomas Berry, an extractive universe, where we take out of it what we want and we dump into it what we don't want. We don't give back. Well, we don't give back anything except the rubbish that we don't want. Exactly. And so that whole philosophy of life causes tremendous destruction on the planet. Now, I would have to say, and say this very clearly, I don't know anybody in Ireland who lives that philosophy that I spoke about, where that is how we run our country. We don't. Mm -hmm. But many of us are becoming more and more conscious of our relationship with the earth and of our need to reduce our carbon footprint and of our need to eat locally, to produce our own food. I'm growing vegetables myself. I'm not a master gardener, but, you know, I had lovely potatoes this year. I know the leeks are out there, the spinach, the um, Mm. rainbow chard, and a few more things are growing. But I wouldn't be able to survive on what I'm growing. But I do know that it's something that we must move towards in every country to be growing our own. You're very good in the States for growing locally. Many of the people um, are very good at that. Exactly. And that was a beautiful quote that you had for our times. You know, the U.S. president we have now, if you are not going to be respectful and do good things for the land, you'll see consequences right away. And (laughs) Seems like that's what's happening. And for your people, yeah. And it's interesting, that whole idea. At the heart of the Celtic culture and tradition is the concept of relationship. And relationship is a feminine value. It's so important. The feminine brings things together. The masculine separates them. That does not make the masculine wrong. Both are needed. But if the feminine aspect is absent, then the masculine gets to dominate and it's about separation right and we need that balance and you have a beautiful chapter in your book about the feminine divine of course bridget is part of that you can't talk about the feminine divine in ireland without talking about bridget she is the manifestation of the divine feminine in the irish tradition or has been exactly and what's the kind of relationship between this feminine divine and then like the catholic church in ireland we have that understanding about the importance of the feminine. One of the things that Corrigine Clancy, who's a colleague of mine, she said this many, many years ago, she said an expression from the old Irish tradition is, God is good and he has a great mother. Mm-hmm. Now that's very interesting if you unpack it, because what I hear it saying is, is even God emerges from the feminine energy of being. Mm-hmm. 
because the feminine energy is beingness, whereas the masculine energy is doing. Both are necessary. But that place of beingness, which is that um, the creative void from which everything emerges. Shona then used to talk about renewal the god of the elements and he talked about how that the manifestation of the divine energy in all the myriads of different forms mm -hmm. uh, so so mary interesting mary is hugely honored mary the mother of christ is of jesus is hugely honored within the catholic church mary is on a pedestal but she doesn't have the kind of visceral visceral qualities that bridget has she is presented as this almost disembodied person and the feminine has to be embodied if you ask many many people who grew up in rural ireland will have a strong connection with bridget but it might not be explicit there would be individual people would have a lot of connection with bridget but the catholic church wouldn't have any I mean, her feast day is the 1st of February. Mary's feast day is the 2nd of February, uh, Candlemas Day. That's right. We have the goddess and we have the Saint Bridget. Are they the same? Are they different? Is there a way to take them apart? Yeah, there is, of course. It's very interesting. Again, going back to, um, I'll just even quote you a bit from my book about this. It just puts it very succinctly. And um, this is from a Celtic scholar, Pruntius Macana. Paradoxically, it is in the person of her Christian namesake, St. Bridget, that the pagan goddess Bridget survives best. For if the historical elements of the legends of St. Bridget is slight, the mythological element is correspondingly extensive. And it is clear beyond question that the saint has usurped the role of the goddess and much of her mythological tradition. It must be accepted that there is no clear distinction that can be made between the goddess and the saint, and that in all probability, Bridget's great monastery at Kildare was probably a pagan sanctuary. Mm. So, they're, so they're totally intertwined. Uh, and because people would often say to me, um, is what you teach pagan or Christian? And I'm going, well, actually, there is no difference because Christianity is an evolution of what was the pre-Christian story. And we live in the evolutionary universe. It's always unfolding. And so you don't lose what went before. Like every molecule in your body and mine was in millions of years ago in something else. But that molecule that was in something else is now part of me. So it's not, am I a pre-human reptile? There's a part of me is. I have a reptilian brain. Part of my brain is reptilian. So everything is included. Everything, as we evolve, then everything that went before is included in some way. Right, exactly. That perspective, I hear that echoed a lot in a lot of the writings from, say, Sean O'Dunn or other writers as well. Then um, you go to, say, some of the academics who really try to break down, okay, where is the goddess and where is the saint? And they make them into two different entities. And it's a very interesting thing how they really rationalize where everything goes. And I had not realized the extent to which they, they really go into it because I know I focus so much on the literature that, say, if I looked up Celtic spirituality in the library, all those books, you know, that I found. So when you find these papers that have been written or some of the books that have been written that are more academic and there's a different perspective there, you know, they really try to parse it out. And I think you're right, but that's the academic approach and it's valuable, very valuable, and it needs to be there. But in the final analysis, the question I ask, 
What is it that moves from one time to the next time to the next time to the next time? And I believe that those motifs, those mythological images, those archetypal energies that remain in the story as we evolve from the, the megalithic, neolithic into the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the Druidic uh, culture, the Celtic culture, and into Celtic Christianity and onward. What stays there is what has served the tribe. And I mean, I'm not an academic in this area, and I made a very conscious choice not to become academic in this. This was my soul's work that I needed to do. And, you know, Patrick Kavanagh, going back to him again, he says, this soul needs to be clothed in a dress woven of blues and greens and arguments that cannot be proven. You know, it's a very different way of looking at it. I, you know, have had a career as an academic in biochemistry and I love academia, I love thinking, but there's a place where that doesn't actually work. And that is one of the biggest problems with, say, the institutional churches. It's all academic. And go back to Patrick Kavanagh. God can't catch you unless you rest in the unconscious room of your heart. And if you're in your head, you're not in your heart. And the academic way of doing religion remains academic. It doesn't, it doesn't give you an aha experience. It doesn't give you soul moments. And it's not to be against one. We, we make choices. I mean, there's some wonderful research that traces Bridget back to being a bear goddess away in Siberia. Fabulous work done by a man called Seamus O'Cahan. I love reading. And his work is beautiful. And it's academic. But it's not the rigidity that some academics come at. I like to look at things and I like to analyze things and understand things, but just the extent to which some people have gone is very interesting. Yes, absolutely. Right. I, I'd love to ask about the music, about, um, say, like Bridget music. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because I had an idea to do a project for this year's festival, which is not going to happen this year's festival, but it will happen next year. Uh, and that was to put together a CD because several people are being given, downloading, wonderful chants, you know. And, well, the key person I asked wasn't able to do it this year because she's doing something else. But beautiful chants are coming through people and they are being offered in. And um, I don't know if you heard, um, did you go to Anne McDonald's workshop when you were here? I did. Yeah, amazing. Her music, her Bridget music is extraordinary. And one of her chances, you know, Bridget, weaving your love through our bodies, opening my heart to the love that lies within, weaving your love through my... It's just beautiful. And then she has many other Bridget chants. There's a lovely woman called Elaine Karja. Did you meet her in Tara? Yes, I did. She was given a beautiful chant for the Bridges Way pilgrimage this year, and it was... Bridget of the flame, that holy, holy name. Bridget of the well, the home of all that is. So the flame and the, the water, which are so synonymous with Bridget. And she had beautiful quotes on those. I don't have the words of that chant, either of them. But a lovely woman called Gemma McGowan, when we were on the pilgrimage last year, she got this beautiful chant. And it was, go to the well, go to the well, look into the water. See what must be seen deep in the water. And that's that old invitation because the water is the entrance into the other world in the Celtic tradition. And the water is the place where you find the wisdom. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yes. There will be new chants coming out. There's talk about a new cosmology. How would you describe a new cosmology? 
Well, I think the new cosmology is a cosmology that incorporates the wonderful insights from science, from space travel, uh, that all the wonderful work of people like Thomas Berry, Joanna Macy, Brian Swim, Fritzer Capra. I suppose the new cosmology would, would have begun when, in 1969, when men walked on the moon and were able to see the planet, or the guy, I can't remember his name, we had him give us a talk and he showed all these amazing images of the Earth as a beautiful blue and green planet from outer space. And you see that what we have is a whole being, it's a whole unit. So the, the new cosmology is to do with understanding the planet as a living organism, and about how everybody is involved in this, every being is involved in it, and that everything is interconnected. Now, it's a new cosmology, but it was also the, the cosmology of the primal people all over the world. They understood that to us because we have gotten out of that way of thinking so much. But it is the work of a new way of seeing the world as an amazing interconnected unity. Right. One more question about the music just came to me. What is it about the music? Like what place does music have in, say, the Bridget of Fahart Festival or if you are celebrating Celtic calendar and all the other holidays that come up? What place does music have and what place can music take people in a ritual setting? I think that music is absolutely essential in ritual because it opens the gateway into spirit. And I do three festivals every year rituals for each of us so we do Samhain which we on the 5th of November Bialtana in May and Lunasa we don't do Imbolc here because we do that as part of the festival but music is hugely important and the pieces of music will reflect you see one of the things that's important to understand about ritual is ritual is the physical enactment of a particular mythology. So the mythology of Samhain will have a particular acting out of that within the physical, which is the ritual, and that ritual will have particular chants that are that are appropriate to that. It's another dimension. It also brings people out of their heads and down into their hearts. And it opens the door to spirit. And so your your book, Ever Ancient, Ever New, is such a really wonderful treasure for people. And besides the book and the Bridget of Fahert Festival, do you offer any other kinds of opportunities to connect with Celtic spirituality? And if people are interested in your work, how can they contact you and find out more? Well, I have a website, and my website is DoloresWhelan.ie. At the moment, I'm kind of going into a sound place myself. Between now and Bridges Day, I won't be offering any courses because I'm actually writing. And so that's what I'm doing. And then in, we have the Bridget of Forehead Festival, which has its own website. And we love people to come from outside the country to celebrate with us. Um, so that we also have the Bridges Way Pilgrimage, which takes place in July every year. It's a nine-day walking pilgrimage. And that website is www.bridgetsway.ie this year's pilgrimage it starts i think on the 14th of july i just need to check that i could email you that yeah and then also i'm going to be scheduling uh, several retreats there will be mostly five to six day retreats in the late spring and early summer of uh, of 2018 one of them will be on the divine feminine and another one will be a celtic spirituality a holy embrace of spirit and nature 
I haven't got the details of those yet, but that's what I'll be doing and the pilgrimage. And also, I sometimes take people who can't come for the whole nine days or can't come at that time. Like I took several groups for two or three days of walking pilgrimage. So we can, I'm available to do that. I'm also available to work as a spiritual guide on pilgrimages that other people bring. I've just spent the last two weeks doing that. I've worked with five groups, one from Brazil and four from America. So, And the book is available on my website. I also have a beautiful calendar co-created by myself and a lovely artist from Cincinnati who died two years ago. And so her paintings are just extraordinary. It's a perpetual calendar. And so it works with the, with the eight seasons, with seed meditations and information about how the year works. You know, I think I have that calendar, actually. <laughs> if it's at um, Bridget's Garden, if it was sold in that shop. It is. Oh, it's a beautiful one. I have it right there on my own my own altar. So beautiful. Yeah, well, that was created by Cynthia Métis. She painted mostly from the Celtic tradition and myself. Beautiful. Could I maybe quote a little bit of this lovely poem? Sure. So the prayer is, The mantle of Bridget about us, The memory of Bridget within us, the protection of Bridget keeping us from harm, from ignorance, from heartlessness, this day and night, from dawn till dark. It's a, a blessing of Bridget. It's beautiful. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Bye.